Welcome to the podcast, Conquering Cancer Together. I'm Dr. Marianne Fregola, Clinical Director of Supportive Services here at New York Cancer and Blood Specialists, and this is my co-host, Wendy Kaplan, Registered Dietitian, Nutritionist, and Director of Nutritional Services. We are your podcast hosts, and we are thrilled to have you back with us for our podcast series that will focus on a variety of issues related to cancer. This is thanks to a generous sponsorship from Pfizer, who teamed up with us because they support our mission to provide world-class, patient-centered, affordable care to patients with cancer and blood disorders in their communities, close to family and friends. We are thrilled to have Dr. Aguilar, medical oncologist at New York Cancer and Blood Specialists, here with us today to talk about prostate cancer. Dr. Aguilar is a board-certified hematologist and oncologist. He specializes in malignancies originating from the genitourinary tract, specifically prostate, bladder, kidney, and testicular cancers. We'll start off by examining the latest statistics and trends in prostate cancer, and then we'll explore various aspects of the disease, including screening recommendations, diagnosis and treatment options, We'll also look into post-treatment management, including the role of diet and lifestyle, and how they can affect recurrence. References and links on the information discussed today can be found in our show notes. So Dr. Aguilar, we're very happy to have you here today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. So let's jump right in. Can you give us some general statistics on prostate cancer in the United States? And- sure. So prostate cancer is actually the most common cancer diagnosed in men when you put aside non-melanoma to skin cancers. It's approximated in the United States that approximately 250,000 men are diagnosed per year. And the prevalence of prostate cancer is approximately 3 million people here in the United States. Approximately 30,000 deaths per year are attributed to prostate cancer. It's not as high as the death rates from lung cancer, but it's up there. And so it's a very, very common problem. Another way, another statistic that's put out there is that one out of six men at some point in life would be diagnosed with prostate cancer. The good news is not all prostate cancers are lethal and not all prostate cancers require treatment. And so it's very important that if a man is diagnosed with prostate cancer, that they are given that diagnosis within the appropriate context in terms of understanding what stage it's at, what grade of cancer we're dealing with, and also what stage at life you're being diagnosed with. So a gentleman who's being diagnosed at age 85 doesn't necessarily have to be aggressive in terms of pursuing treatment or pursuing aggressive treatment as opposed to a gentleman that's been diagnosed at age 50. The goal is not necessarily with prostate cancer to ensure that the cancer is eradicated. It's it's to ensure that the cause of death in the future shouldn't be due to the prostate cancer. Could you tell us what age is appropriate to begin screening for prostate cancer according to latest guidelines, and are there differing guidelines for people based on various factors such as race and ethnicity and family history or possibly other risk factors? So the general recommendation for somebody who has no increased risk of prostate cancer based on their family history is to begin screening at age 50 and above. That does differ for patients of African-American ancestry, as it is known that there is a higher prevalence of prostate cancer amongst African-Americans. And so the general recommendation is to begin screening between ages of 40 to 45 or any patients that have a known strong family history of having prostate cancer running in their family. Again, it is recommended at age 40 to 45. There are rare instances where there may be family members that have been diagnosed with prostate cancer at an extremely young age. And in those situations, then it should be considered for their first-degree relatives to be screened even at earlier ages. Does screening save lives? 
So that's a great question, and it's been a question of controversy over the years. It used to be in the 1980s and 90s, PSA screening was used universally, and it began to be recognized that there were instances where men perhaps were being overtreated with prostate cancer that didn't necessarily require treatment. It led to the United States Preventive Task Force uh, approximately 10 years ago actually recommending against PSA screening universally amongst men. This has been a stance that major medical societies have not really necessarily supported with the understanding that the PSA screening test should be used in the context of understanding the pros and cons of undergoing prostate biopsies and also understanding that once a a cancer diagnosis is made, treatment should be decided upon based on a patient's life expectancy, risk factors of the underlying histology along with the stage in deciding whether or not a patient should be offered treatment. And so when using the PSA screening test within this context, at the end of the day, it does have the power to save lives, I believe, in my opinion, when it is used judiciously. When we speak of prostate cancer and common typical symptoms that men can look out for, is there something that you usually recommend? So we always hope that when a cancer diagnosis is made, it's done at the time where symptoms have not developed. It's not a good sign when a man has already started to develop symptoms, but symptoms that could be worrisome for an underlying prostate cancer diagnosis is if a man has underlying increased urinary frequency, albeit most men who do have increased urinary frequency generally, that is due to having underlying benign prostatic hyperplasia or having an enlarged prostate gland, new onset hematuria, uh, new onset erectile dysfunction, and then in more advanced stages, men who start to develop new unexplained back pain or hip pain, those could be some worrisome signs of an underlying prostate cancer diagnosis. So I ask that mostly for awareness, right? We want to bring awareness to many of these issues where men sometimes feel embarrassed to bring up. So um, the reason why we ask for symptom management or symptoms that may may, uh, begin is to bring awareness to them to speak to their doctors and that no symptom is too minimal. Absolutely, yeah. How is prostate cancer detected? And are there biomarkers that you look at for prostate cancer and how effective are they? That's a really good question. So as I alluded to before, First and foremost, the uh, PSA screening test is the paradigm biomarker that's used for not only for screening for prostate cancer, but also for assessing for treatment response and for recurrences of prostate cancer in uh, situations where you've already made a diagnosis. Once you have a suspected prostate cancer diagnosis based on a screening PSA test, it's important to have a urologic evaluation with a digital rectal exam. In certain select circumstances, perhaps an MRI of the prostate gland would be recommended in which we can actually get cross-sectional imaging of the prostate gland and the surrounding organs to see whether or not there may be any underlying suspicious lesions within the prostate. The next step would be to have a consideration for a prostate biopsy, and prostate biopsies are done in various fashions. The traditional way of uh, obtaining a prostate biopsy would be with the usage of a transrectal ultrasound and biopsying the prostate gland within a standard 12-core template. With now the more wider usage of MRIs of the prostate gland, we are also now offering fusion-guided biopsies. We're not only providing the standard 12-template cores biopsies, but also performing targeted biopsies on lesions of suspicion that are noted on an MRI. Generally speaking, the biopsy of the prostate gland is the ultimate modality that we used in order to make the diagnosis. You mentioned uh, MRI, obviously. Is there a PET scan imaging that's important? So PET scan is uh, also a very important tool that we have now at our disposal, specifically in situations where an underlying diagnosis has already been made. And in situations where we are noting that we are dealing with a high-risk prostate cancer, 
or if there's any signs that there may be already local advancement of the disease, the PET scan can become very, very helpful to rule out local regional lymph node involvement and also to rule out distant metastatic disease, also known as stage four prostate cancer. And that has ultimate implications in deciding what treatment modalities to offer our patients in the initial stages. The PET imaging also is utilized in later stages of the disease where a patient has already undergone treatment and there are signs and symptoms that perhaps their cancer is progressing, in which case the PET scan can be very useful to assess the extent of their disease. And now there are newer therapies utilizing radioligands that specifically are indicated in patients that have PET-positive disease. So the PET scan is becoming more and more of a useful tool along various clinical states of this disease. So once prostate cancer is detected, what is typically the next step? And can you provide us with a basic overview of beginning treatments? So once we have a diagnosis, it's really important to, first of all, establish the stage of the disease. And the stage is established if a patient has what's considered to be a high-risk lesion, and that's based on the Gleason score that is reported by the pathologist. So before we get into staging, let me talk a little bit about what a Gleason score means. The Gleason score is a, uh, a description given by the pathologist to, so to speak, give us an idea as to how angry the cancer cells look like under a microscope. The score goes from a 6 to 10, 6 being considered to be a low score or low-grade disease, and 10 being a very, very high or aggressive lesion. Generally speaking, any Gleason scores of 8 or above are considered to be high risk, and those are the types of cancer that definitely do require treatment. It's debatable whether or not Gleason 6 or 7 cancers do require treatment. So once we've established the Gleason score, then we can also decide on what other imaging modalities would be necessary to establish the stage. So those patients that have intermediate or high-risk prostate cancers based on their Gleason score oftentimes would be recommended to have a conventional CAT scan and a bone scan, or if available, as we discussed, a PET scan using novel radio tracers specifically targeting prostate cancer cells. And then once we've established the stage, we can then identify what the treatment options are. We always want to uh, offer definitive curative treatment for those patients that have localized disease, meaning to say that the cancer seems to be contained at least within the prostate gland, if not at worst, perhaps involving some of the regional lymph nodes. And based on the extent of the disease, we would then offer potential surgical or radiation options. Those patients that have demonstrated metastatic disease or spread of the disease way beyond the prostate gland, generally speaking, are going to be offered more hormone therapy types of options or sometimes in certain situations, chemotherapy options as well. I know there are various factors to consider in every case, like you just stated, metastatic versus local regional disease, but can you provide some general information on the pros and cons of each treatment and additionally how these treatments tend to be tolerated overall? Okay, so we'll start with uh, the patient that has localized disease. It's a discussion as to whether or not we should even offer treatment to begin with. So those patients that are considered to be low risk can be offered active surveillance. The concept of active surveillance is that we're not necessarily jumping to do treatment, but we're also not necessarily ignoring the fact that they have a prostate cancer diagnosis. And these are, this is a well-established strategy that has been validated amongst clinical trials indicating that men who have localized low-risk disease can safely be watched as opposed to jumping to surgery or radiation right away. Generally speaking, the way that active surveillance is conducted is by having serial PSA checks. Uh, that can be done once every three to six months, along with having a repeat biopsy at some point 
There are some centers where they would do a repeat confirmatory biopsy in as soon as six months, but oftentimes a repeat biopsy is offered at 12 months. And as long as there's no signs of clinical progression based on PSA, based on symptoms, and based on repeat biopsies, generally speaking, patients continue to be observed. Studies have shown that those patients that did choose to do active surveillance, that did have progression of the disease, did not necessarily have any detriment in terms of their overall survival from the disease. So that's an option that we always like to consider offering those patients that have low-risk disease. Then you have patients that have intermediate or high-risk disease where the chances of their disease causing death or mortality in the future is high enough to warrant treatment. It's a discussion that has to be had deciding between surgery versus radiation. So the surgical approach is nowadays offered using laparoscopic technique with, uh, with robotic assistance. Generally speaking, it is expected that a, a patient would be hospitalized for one night postoperatively and that they would be going home with a Foley catheter, which is a, a plastic tube that's left within the penis to collect urine for approximately a week. Subsequent to that, the Foley catheter would be removed and a man would generally need to go through a period of time of regaining their urinary continence, and that can take anywhere between three to six months. There are some cases where a man will have some degree of permanent urinary incontinence. The other potential side effect with radical prostatectomy is that a man can have permanent erectile dysfunction as well, and that's generally a side effect that urologists will work with their patients in terms of trying to regain continence either through medical therapy or through further surgical techniques. The advantages of going for a prostatectomy is that you're physically removing the tumor. It gives us an opportunity to further stage the disease by actually sampling the lymph nodes that are surrounding the prostate gland because there are situations where there may not be evidence of disease within the lymph nodes on the radiographic scans prior to the surgery, whereas at the time of the surgery, we do see that indeed there was spread to the lymph nodes. So we get a little bit more of an accurate surgical stage. And then subsequent to surgery, it's a little bit more easier to detect a recurrence because we usually monitor the PSA post-surgery to see whether or not there's any evidence of disease that's left. The PSA is protein that's generally produced through normal prostate gland tissue or through the prostate cancer cells. So it is expected for that a man who's in remission from their cancer after surgery that their PSA should go down to an undetectable level. So if a PSA is detectable right after surgery or at some point in the future after surgery, then if their prostate gland has been removed by process of elimination, it must be that their cancer is active and therefore it's a much easier and reliable way to detect a recurrence if a man has had a prostatectomy. The alternative would be to offer radiation treatment. Uh, radiation is less invasive than surgery, so there's no anesthesia involved, there's no cutting, and radiation is delivered in various modalities. The traditional way of, of fractionating radiation co go as long as nine weeks. More modern uh, radiation protocols have uh, brought that down to five to six weeks, or even in some centers have brought it down to just five treatments. And radiation is delivered, generally speaking, on uh, every weekday, Monday to Friday, for that period of time. It is expected that during radiation that a man may have not necessarily incontinence of urine, but more urinary urgency, more towards the latter half of the radiation, and that can linger for some time after the radiation has been completed. In very exceptional cases, that urinary urgency can be at times even permanent. Erectile function, generally speaking, is not as affected with radiation the same way it is with surgery. But uh, later on in life, there can be a higher risk of developing erectile dysfunction in those men that have undergone radiation. 
And then depending on the risk category group that a patient may lie into, a patient with radiation would be offered also what we call quote-unquote hormonal therapy or androgen deprivation therapy. So androgen deprivation therapy is a medical modality where we are mimicking a man being in a state of castration. And the reason that we do that is because testosterone is the hormone that is inherently produced within every male but it also is the hormone that this cancer nourishes itself off of. So we try in high risk or intermediate risk prostate cancers to also use androgen deprivation therapy in conjunction with radiation therapy because it is thought that when the cancer is in a, is a state of starvation, it's more likely that it will be killed by the radiation. And in addition to that, in the event that there's any cancer that may have floated beyond the prostate gland that we haven't been able to detect, that the androgen deprivation therapy should also be able to, to an extent, treat those cancer cells as well. So the trade-off with that is that androgen deprivation therapy also has some potential side effects as well, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit more. Right. I was going to jump in and say this is where I like to be a little proactive and even just with nutrition and work on things with regards to like bone loss, insulin sensitivity, or I should say decreased insulin sensitivity, elevated lipid levels, hot flashes, sarcopenia, your whole body composition changes. But um, it's nice to be proactive from the beginning. Right. Yeah. So you're bringing up very important points, Wendy. When, you know, it's, it's something that when men are first diagnosed, they kind of forget about the long-term side effects of going on androgen deprivation therapy. It's more of a focus of, you know, do I go for surgery or radiation? Don't forget the fact that androgen deprivation therapy does have some long-term side effects. So as you alluded to, there's a risk of having muscle mass loss, increase in abdominal girth. The risk for cardiovascular disease does go up. The risks for developing higher cholesterol and uh, insulin resistance goes up as well. So, you know, we, we do offer it, and it is very, very important to use our resources within the supportive care team to ensure that the deleterious potential effects of androgen deprivation therapy is minimized. So we can safely say it's a very individualized process, and, you know, one treatment may not be broad for everybody else. Absolutely. There's no one-size-fits-all approach for prostate cancer, and I always try to remind my patients of that. It's very easy to see... Uh, to, to Google online, you know, what's the ideal way to treat prostate cancer or, you know, to talk to family and friends. And the mistake that you can falter in is thinking that there's one ideal approach to treat prostate cancer and there's no such thing. We always have to pick what's the ideal approach for the individual patient. We often get that where it's, well, my friend had this or my friend had that. And it's difficult sometimes to tell patients that, you know, everybody's case is unique and what works for one may not be for others. So I'm glad that that was an excellent overview that we can really teach our patients on, um, to learn from. So you did mention the supportive care, which you know I'm very involved in. <laughs> so I have to take this opportunity to ask how you think the supportive care team can benefit the patient. Oh, I mean, from various aspects. So beginning from diagnosis, it's, it's a life-altering event when you're told that you have cancer. And for a male who's being told that they have cancer of a very, very important organ within the genital urinary system, psychologically it can also take a big toll on them. You know, it's going to be affecting their sexual life. It's going to be affecting their potential self-dignity in terms of uh, having to go through a period of time where they don't have full urinary confidence. So it's very, very easy for men to fall into a feeling of despair and depression. And so certainly from the psychological standpoint, it's really, really crucial to ensure that men feel that they can cope with their new chapter in life. Um, and moving on to more advanced stages of the disease, uh, ultimately prostate cancer that does metastasize, it ends up becoming a lethal disease. And a lot of times the quality of life can also be significantly impacted due to the fact that men have to deal with the 
sequelae of having bone metastases, which can sometimes be painful. And so bone metastases can lead to pathologic fractures, loss of uh, ability to have uh, appropriate balance, and oftentimes we need the expertise of our colleagues within supportive care to ensure that pain is optimally managed. Yeah, we love to be involved and, and to continue to make the quality of life better. And also with our interdisciplinary team, I notice with our psychology and social work and nutrition, physical therapy, all of these things can enhance a patient's care. Absolutely. Is there anything that you feel that would be important that we haven't covered? So I think we did discuss a little bit about, you know, the, uh, the factors that we take into consideration in deciding on how to deal with localized disease. But we also have to recognize that men will sometimes also be diagnosed to have metastatic disease either off the bat at the time of initial diagnosis or sometimes after having had a good period of time of being in remission and having uh, evidence of recurrent disease. And, you know, that is a, uh, a different viewpoint that we have to have. There are different priorities that we have to have when we are dealing with a man that has metastatic or incurable cancer. Um, I try to really, really drive in the point to my patients that, you know, life doesn't end at the time that you're told that you have end-stage cancer. It's just a different chapter in your life, and life moves on. And fortunately, we have a lot more life-prolonging therapies that have been developed over the last 15 years in particular for prostate cancer that are allowing not only men to live longer lives, but also to maintain their quality of life and to live well. And in these situations also, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. There are chemotherapy options that may be appropriate for certain men, but not appropriate for others. Right. There are also the dosing in the way that we are offering the chemotherapy, which are appropriate for certain men and not appropriate for others as well. There are also more novel hormonal treatments, and there are various options out there that come in an oral form, and they have various potential side effects, which also may be appropriate for certain men and not appropriate for all. So again, getting back to the same theme, that there's no one-size-fits-all approach. Our goal is not only to hopefully prolong the lives of our patients, but to ensure that they are living as well as possible. And so, you know, now that we are we have access to much more life-prolonging therapies. You know, the focus on ensuring that quality of life is maintained is, is, is becoming a bigger and bigger priority as time goes on. Even with the um, modalities of radiation, how it's more targeted. I often tell patients the same thing. I often say that, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around what you would diagnose, but this, these become chronic illnesses because of the advancements that we've made. And that the key is that we're actually living with these illnesses and take the focus off of the diagnosis, but continue the medications for as long as they work and that they do very well. More along the themes of uh, understanding that, you know, every case has to be dealt with individually. We didn't speak about genomics so much yet. And that has become a very, very important component in the optimal management of the man with metastatic prostate cancer. We, over the years, have now understood that approximately 10% of men do have a genomic component to their prostate cancer, specifically the BRCA2 mutation, which historically has been associated with women who've been diagnosed with breast cancer or ovarian cancer, is now being recognized that it also does impact a sizable proportion of men with prostate cancer. And that has significant implications. So it's the men that have high risk or advanced stage prostate cancer I do encourage that they are offered germline genetic testing early on. Germline meaning meaning to say that these are the genes that they inherited from their mother or father, hereditary genes, but not only looking at the germline mutations, but also looking at the somatic profile of the cancer. So oftentimes cancers can also acquire their own genetic abnormalities that were not necessarily passed on from the patient's mother or father. And so it's also important to detect those genes through what we uh, call next generation sequencing. And that has significant implications when you identify such genetic drivers therapeutically. There are now a class of drugs 
that goes by the name of a PARP inhibitor. And there are various ones now FDA approved for the management of prostate cancer that are tremendously effective when it utilized in, in these particular patients. The other implications are if uh, there is a germline genetic mutation that is detected, that loved ones need to be notified because it does have implications, as I mentioned, uh, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and also pancreatic cancer risks do go up in family members that are also harboring such mutations. That goes back to the awareness that we're talking about. And if people know these mutations, they can be very proactive in their screening. And it doesn't change that they have it, but we can incidentally detect cancers much earlier. So all very good information. Dr. Aguilar, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned so much, and this was very informative. Thank you very much again for the invitation. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us today for our second episode of Conquering Cancer Together. We hope you have enjoyed it as much as we did and found it informative. Please share this podcast with anyone you would feel benefit, whether it be patients or family members. We hope you tune in for more episodes of our four podcast series sponsored by Pfizer. Links to references and resources and other information can be found in our show notes. Please find us and like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. In addition to our social media outlets, you can always find us close to home, conquering cancer together.